Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 610 with Ben Tran. One of the things that I always tell people, when you go into business with somebody, always put everything in writing and, 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 and that's fantastic. But do it with someone that you know that even if you forget to put it in writing, that their word is good, that their handshake is good. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then... Join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. I'm sure you've heard of Revel, but have you heard of the Revel Advantage? It is the payment processing solution that seamlessly integrates into your Revel point of sale and platform to create a complete system tailored to your business needs. Revel manages both your POS and your payments with integrated software, hardware, and credit card processing to save you time and money so you can focus on your business. Learn more at revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash Stoppable, and when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. Here is a statistic for you. 89% of all guests will research a restaurant online before dining out. So you've got to start thinking about how you can extend your in-house hospitality and attention to detail to the online world. Bento Box is a great place to start. They will develop a restaurant website that not only leaves lasting impressions with your guests, but also provides hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online and guests into your restaurant. Sign up today at Get bento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. Get on it. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Ben Tran. Ben, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am feeling really good today, inspired, and most of all, blessed. Yes, I cannot wait to dive into your story. So Ben Tran attended Duke School of Law and started his career at Fulbright in Jaworski LLP as a litigation lawyer and operated his own law practice uh, prior to joining Bush and Ramirez LLC. In 2012, uh, Ben decided to take a stab at the world of hospitality with Hughes Hanger, a bar in event space. Hughes Hanger was followed by the De Gaulle and Ben's most recent project, Chapman and Kirby, where we're sitting today. And in addition to all this, Ben has been active in the political landscape for over a decade. And Ben has also been active in the business community with the belief that if we're going to uh, be given great opportunity, it is our obligation to pay that opportunity back by creating opportunity for the next generation. I cannot wait for your story uh, and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra what do you got for us? So in, when you're an entrepreneur and you've got a million things going on at all times, it's easy to get stressed out about things. It's easy to, to have your brain running on overload. The thing I always say to myself to, rem, uh, to remind myself of what's important and it helps to clear the brain is that I don't have to do anything today but be grateful for everything that I have. Yes. And I repeat that to myself 
so that I can remember what's really important is to be grateful for what you have. And then everything else seems to be put in perspective. And you worry, okay, that one uh, plumbing issue or the one electrical issue, it's not the end of the world. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, perspective is one thing that we're just so lucky to have as humans. We, can, we, we get to choose how we want to look at things. And by making that pivot, by making that switch, it can be a completely different outlook. And one person, I can't remember who said it, but they don't say, I, I have to do this. They say, I get to do this. And by making that little switch and how they just look at things and saying, I get to do this, I choose to do this, it can change your day. Do you want to reflect on that? Absolutely. So the difference between a job and something you love to do as a hobby um, is that perspective. Yeah. So you can wake up and go, oh, crap, I hate, I hate the fact that I have to get up and, and, and go to this job. Uh, or you can wake up and say, all right, I am excited. Uh, I'm ready to get there. And that's the difference between an eight-hour day feeling like 16 hours or going by in a flash. You mm-hmm. know? And so and you generally tend to be better at what you love. So I, I always tell people, you know, um, if, if you have the opportunity, if you can afford to do something you love because you're going to be a lot better at it. Um, and in fact, you're probably going to um, have a much longer, more successful career. Yeah. something you love. Yeah. And I don't typically go this far back in the, the lives of my guests, but I feel like it's worth kind of going really far back into your life because you had some really big events happen early in your life that kind of are, you know, huge because are huge influencers in, in, in who you are today. So take us back to, I think you know what I'm talking about, to how you came over to the States. So we left Vietnam uh, on the last day of the Vietnam War, April 30th, 1975. We were one of the lucky few that was able to get out by the skin of our teeth. Um, if you remember the famous uh, photo of the airlift from the U.S. Embassy at the last minute when they were lifting the last of the U.S. personnel out of the country, we got out after that even. Wow. The war was basically over at that point, and um, we, we were stuck um, uh, there, as, as, were, as were most people. We get a phone call from a friend that works security at the port, they said, hey, there's an Italian ammunition boat that's going to be leaving here in an hour. If you want to get out, this is your one chance to do it. Uh, you don't have time to grab everybody you know. You don't have time to grab all your family. Grab whoever's in arms distance and get down here. And so we had to leave a lot of family behind, but we were able to get most of our immediate family out. Um, and we get down there. Um, and the whole scenario for the days leading up to it, was coincidence on top of coincidence on top of coincidence on top of coincidence. Any one of which not happening, I would not be sitting here in front of you. I would be still in Vietnam uh, in a third world country uh, with a completely different life. And so the fact that I was one of the lucky few that was able to get out, that is a foundational aspect. Um, that's not just happens to be anecdotal. It really is forms who I am because uh, I recognize that I was lucky to be blessed to be given the opportunity uh, to come to a country like America where, you know, the sky really is the limit. Um, in third world countries, you can be very talented, you can work hard, uh, you can be very intelligent, but the sky, uh, but the sky is not the limits uh, in many cases, and the ceiling is actually pretty low for most people. Um, and the fact that my family got to come over here, uh, I got to, you know, an amazing education. I got to go to Duke Law School. My two sisters, uh, my, uh, I have two sisters. My oldest sister uh, got her law degree from Cornell. My other sister got to get her PhD from Columbia. Um, these are the kind of things that are not remotely possible um, in a third world country. Um, so when, uh, when I take stock of what me and my family have here, um, it's all based on... Um, kindness 
uh, that we met, uh, the kindness that we received when we came to America, uh, strangers reaching out, uh, opening their homes it, to us. I'm just curious, how old? You said it was 1975. How old were you in 1975? I was 13 months old when we left. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously foundational for you. I mean, this sure. the, you came up through a whole different filter, a whole different system, and you started talking about how when you, when you got here, you, you were... Brought in by a host, or not host, but what was the, the appropriate term for the folks in Columbia? So Ohio. when uh, Columbus, right? So we we got picked up by a, a U.S. aircraft carrier in the Pacific Ocean. We were on a boat, and, yeah. and and when we made our way out to the Pacific Ocean, we got picked up by a U.S. A- aircraft carrier. They took us to Guam uh, to a refugee camp in Guam, where we stayed for a little while. And then when they uh, took us to America, uh, we were at a refugee camp in uh, Pennsylvania, and there. You stay there until you basically get uh, a sponsor, gotcha. and the sponsor is supposed to you know help you learn the ways of, of a new country, um, how to get a job, how to get your social security number, driver's license, things of that nature. All the little things that we all take for granted that someone from uh, a totally different country would have no idea how to do. Just acclimating into to society, absolutely. Yeah. And so we were sponsored by a Lutheran church in uh, Columbus, Ohio, um, and and this is a church that was primarily made up of blue collar. Uh, middle class, lower to middle class income uh, individuals. Um, these are people that were living paycheck to paycheck, um, and they could ill afford to be generous and kind to strangers, uh, and yet they did it anyways. They took their dollar and they stretched it a little bit further, and they helped strangers from a country that they just fought a war against. Um, and I will always remember that kindness, um, and and that's part of why I say it was a foundational experience. Just because you know that you were lucky, you know that everything you have today is because of the luck of getting out, and then also the luck of coming to America and meeting the compassionate people that we did that helped us get our start. And so everything we have, it's like a domino effect. Everything we have was from that first few dominoes, and uh, I always remember that. It stays with me every single day. It's part of who I am. When did you realize uh, this fortune you had? When did this fortune really start to influence the decisions you were making in life and your just total outlook of gratitude on life? So I think, um, uh, you know, as long as I can remember, uh, I remember when we were young, even when we were still struggling and, you know, financially and everything, when we were young, uh, for Thanksgiving, my mother would take us all down to this uh, super feast where we would help feed the homeless, right? Um, and I was maybe four or five years old when, when we did the first Are one. Are you still in Columbus at this point? Uh, no, this is in Houston. Okay, so in Houston. by then we had moved to Houston. Um, and um, my parents made sure that we were aware that there were people worse off than us um, and um, you know we watched news and, and this was dur- this is during the 80s when um, you had the, um, uh, the Ethiopian famine that was on, on the news constantly uh, you had the leper colonies still and you know late night television they had those you know for the, the price of a cup of coffee a day you could save this child's life and then show pictures of, of children with the bloated bellies and yeah. you know and, and the flies going around their face and those are the kind of, kind of things you see that gives you the, the perspective that we were talking about earlier where you recognize the fact that you come home to a roof over your head and food to eat uh, you're doing better than a lot of people in this world and um, so early on um, it was something that our parents instilled in us and um, you know it it, 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 it it clicked with me what exactly do you think that they were trying to teach you in that moment uh, what was the the purpose of making sure that you they that you knew you had more than some a lot of other people out there you know I, I think one of the things that um, is incumbent upon parents to teach their children is compassion. Mm. Um, you have to learn to love other people, um, and you have to learn that that's the most important currency. So one of the things that I that I 
that I see uh, often is people being so obsessed with money, being so obsessed with um, you know material stuff, and um, that's not the only currency that exists. Uh, there's a currency of happiness. There's a currency of giving happiness. There's a currency of making the world a better place. It's not even. It's not only is that not the only currency. It's not even the most Im- top ten most important currencies. There are all these other things that you could be doing with your life that's going to provide you with real substance and with real meaning. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive enough to know to think that money isn't important because mm-hmm. it helps you achieve some of those things. Right? But it's not the only asset. It's not the only asset. Yeah. And if you can pass and spread happiness. Um, in any in, in any way, that's the most important cur- currency, and I think that was something that they tried to instill in us um, early on, and 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 um, I, I've always adhered to that policy. So one other thing I think that is really important that we talk about in in your come up story is uh, just your parents' work ethic, and the it's clear that they were very grateful for this opportunity too. Uh, I, I had the, the privilege. Of, privilege of watching a, an interview with you and another host and you got into talking about how when they came to Houston they came here because of the opportunity that 7-Eleven was cause kind of like food and beverage so sure. kind of like maybe a little bit you grew up in, like, in the food and beverage industry because they were serving food I mean it was retail but you know uh, there's that element there anything you learned from your parents and in, in their approach to business uh, that you think has stuck with you to this day well so, so you know when we, when we got to America um, we started Working, my parents started working in any capacity you, you can get. You, you take whatever you can get at that point. You're 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 learning the language. You don't have any marketable job skills. You've got three young kids. Uh, you do whatever you can get. My dad cleaned U-Haul trucks. My mom was a waitress at the Sears cafeteria, um, and this was in Columbus, Ohio. They see an ad in the newspaper that if you come down to Houston, Seven Eleven is is is, is um, expanding, and and um, if you have four or five people willing to work. Because um, this is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, then they would give you a charge of the restaurant. I mean, uh, uh, they they let you uh, take charge of a store. Uh, you staff and run that store, and then at the end of the day, you know, uh, you get paid a salary. Well, my parents did five people's work jobs with two people, wow. just my mom and dad, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, um, and that you know when you watch your parents working like that. Um, while my dad was also studying to become a mechanic so that he could not do this for the rest of his life, right? So when you see your parents working like that, you don't ever take things for granted. When you watch them work hard, when you watch them come home exhausted and tired uh, and then do it again the next day and never have a day off, um, you you don't take things for granted. And, and when it comes time for you to roll up your sleeve, you roll up your sleeve too. Yeah, we started this, this conversation talking about how you, you and your, your two sisters all went to really great schools and starting from being refugees, you know, and, and the, what, what your parents were willing to sacrifice, how hard they were willing to work to give you an opportunity too. And that, it feels like that, that mentality of working harder for the next generation, regardless of whether or not they're your children or just somebody else's children, I think that has really stuck with you too. Maybe we'll dive into that later in the interview. Or do you want to reflect a, a little bit now on that? You know, people... Uh, say a lot of complimenting things about me and my two sisters in terms of the achievements that we have. But I always tell them, we did the easy stuff. We studied in air-conditioned rooms, you know, plenty of light, you know, and, 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 and food in our stomachs and a roof over our head. My parents did the hard work. Um, you know, coming to a country where they don't speak the language, uh, they don't have market of skills, you're raising three small kids. They did the hard work. Um, uh, the Lutheran church, the people that were already struggling to, to make ends meet and, uh, and helping our family. They did the hard work. What me and my sisters did, I really think by comparison, 
was very easy. So I, 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 don't, I don't ever feel comfortable taking credit for those kind of achievements. Those achievements belong to my parents, to the people that helped us, to this country in general. The fact that immigrants can come to this country um, and, and, and reach that level of success um, is a testament to how great America is. And the reason why people risk life and limb to try to get here is because uh, those kind of opportunities are available here in this country. Absolutely. Uh, so you decided to go to school. You practice uh, law at Duke University. Or Duke. Is it Duke University? Uh, Duke Law School. Duke yeah. Law School. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to practice law? Is this what you wanted or is this what you felt like you had to do? So somewhere around the age of five or six, I remember um, occasionally my mother would let us stay up, st- let me stay up late. And late night television, as I told you back then, was a lot of uh, infomercials uh, about the famine in Ethiopia and um, the leper colonies. And those two things specifically stood out in my mind because they were horrible, horrible images of children in Africa um, uh, having extreme poverty, dying left and right um, because of uh, lack of food, lack of clean water. The leper colonies, obviously, you can imagine what that was like back, back then. And I remember uh, turning to my mother and saying, Mom, we've got to call in. We've got we to gotta help these people. Um, and her saying to me, well, you've got to re- understand that we're poor too. Um, and I remember that feeling of helplessness. And I thought to myself, when I grow up, I want to put myself in a position where I will never have to feel that level of helplessness again. And so the idea was never really to become a lawyer. It was really to become, I, w- I wanted to get into politics. So I, I, I thought, w- what is the best position to affect change and to make the world a better place? Uh, the people that are making the decisions. Heck, I would like to become the president of the United States one day and really make some great decisions and, and, and help people everywhere, abroad and, and, and here in this country. Um, and I kind of worked my way backwards and I thought, okay, well, if, and most politicians come from a law background, okay, in order to, you know, uh, and you were having this thought at six years old. I, I my, my my whole course of, of my life so far, up until the time that I veered off into the hospitality industry, had been planned from since I was a child in my own head. Because I knew in order to become a politician, I had to come from uh, a successful law career. In order to have a successful law career, I had to go to a good law school. In order to go to a good law school, I had to go to do well in college and 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 so forth and so forth. And I worked my way backwards, and so I kept that I kept that path. Uh, and that plan ever since I was a child. But I mean, that, that is really in itself great advice because you, if you want to get someplace, you've got to start with the end in mind. You know, vision. Think about where you want to be and then find out what you have to do to get there. And that's what you intuitively, intuitively did at the age of like, you know, six or maybe a little bit older around that time. You figured it out. Uh, I mean, you, you ultimately also were into politics for a little bit. I mean, was there a reason why you got a, away from Because you worked in, in, uh, in the law, and then you were getting involved in politics. Are you still involved in politics? Is that something you still want to do? You just said you wanted to maybe be president of the United States someday, so it's still there a little bit. So I never had an interest in politics to be a politician. I just had the interest in being able to affect change. Okay. Um, and and um, I wanted to be able to uh, do the things that I believe was right. For, uh, for, for, for people, for animals, uh, all those things. So when I was practicing law, I, was also, I also became 
at that time, I believe, the youngest president of the Asian American Democrats of Texas. Um, I sat on the advisory com- uh, boards of a lot of um, uh, uh, different candidates. I was appointed to a position in Mayor Bill White's administration. Um, so I got to do a lot of... Uh, I, uh, I was very active in the Democratic Party. I, I got to do a lot of uh, things. Um, however, as I got farther along, I really realized that politics wasn't for me. What was uh, it about politics that wasn't for you? There are a lot of compromises that that um, you have to make. That um, like what? I, Give me an example. So the, the the way deals are made, uh, you know, you have to strike a deal. You have to give some, take some, and 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 uh, the machine that exists now. I believe that the machine that exists now is built such that the people that it generally tends to spit out the people um, at the end of that maze that, to get through that uh, that machine and win an, an elected position. Um, are generally not the kind of people you want to make decisions for this country, for the city, for the state. Um, and a lot of the more well-intentioned people can't make it through that machine because the way it's set up, one thing being money. The, the, uh, uh, until we remove money from the system, um, you're going to have un- inequality in um, 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 representation. The people that can afford to put on a, 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 a big campaign are obviously going to have an advantage. And there are a lot of things. And listen, I'm, I'm a very frank kind of person. I speak my mind, and I think uh, that can be off-putting. Um, I think what politicians generally... When you listen to politicians, you'll see they speak through a filter. You yeah. know, um, the 99.9% of them speak through a filter. And they're always weighing the words, and and you know everything has to be kind of uh, manicured and and, and properly um, dissected. Uh, for whereas I'm the kind of person I speak my mind. Yeah, and, and, and we're increasingly living in a world of authenticity and transparency because of our our ability to get access to the truth. So you're better off being painfully honest in the moment and revealing the truth than letting the truth submerge five years from now or later on down the road, right? Uh, and, I, and I see what you're saying. And what, what I'm really curious about, you, you said that you ultimately, your entire life, wanted to be in a, pos- a position to affect change. When you realized the political arena wasn't the best way to do it because of these filters that are in place to filter out the well-intentioned folks, uh, your s- second path was through business and entrepreneurism in hospitality why was that the second path why was that the the the, the next best option to affect change so actually the, the idea was always so i'm still i'm still involved in politics but with always behind the scene so we raised a lot of money for candidates here um we have a candidate uh, doing uh, an event here right now tonight as i speak uh we host fundraisers uh, for candidates so I'm, I'm still very much involved and i'm on the finance committee of the harris county democratic party so um i'm still involved just behind the scenes i don't have an interest in becoming an elected official or or a, a candidate um so i'm still involved um and at, and at the end of the day um whatever avenue i can help in i'm happy to help in um and whether that's hospitality whether that's being a lawyer whether that's you know um, and any kind of business because I'm involved in uh, multiple different types of businesses. But anything I can do to help, um, I'm, I'm happy to do so. So I didn't get into the hospitality specifically for uh, politics. Just everywhere I go, I'm always going to involve and include that to the extent I can so I can help the people that I believe in. Beautiful. And uh, I'm curious, are you still practicing law to this day? I still practice law. Um, I have a, a great um, 
agreement with Bush and Ramirez where I work as much as I want to or as little as I want to. Um, so uh, I bring in cases. I handle some um, other attorneys. I handle some of my other cases and things of that nature. And I take on other, other attorneys' uh, cases kind of on an uh, availability um, uh, basis. Um, that allows me and uh, to do a lot of the other projects I do. Um, uh, working with a tech company, um, I do. do I, I, I'm doing some building townhomes as well. Um, I've got um, a, an expansion project for Chapman and Kirby. So you know, I'm involved in a whole lot of different things, and so I have to be able to have the flexibility with my law practice in yeah. order to go out and handle those things. And uh, fortunately, Bush and Ramirez has been very accommodating in that regard. That makes a lot of sense. All right, now's a good time to take a break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. So Revel Systems is a complete POS built to help grow your expanding business. I stand by Revel, and I can tell you why it's so great, but I'd rather get my man Colton Schultz, who's with Grin Junction Subs in the Craft Cave, to tell you why he loves Revel. We have been working with Revel for several years, who has partnered with us to streamline our operations. We have implemented delivery management, employee management, sales reporting, kitchen display screens, and so much more. We also utilize mobile order takers and kitchen display systems that are extremely customizable. Nice. So if there's just one thing that you love the most about Rebel Systems, what would it be? It's definitely their vast reporting abilities on the back end. We utilize a lot of the reports such as speed of service, taxes, sales reports, labor reports. It's all there to help you run your business. Beautiful. Guys, and if you're listening to this, Revel works with businesses that are looking to implement cutting-edge technology that helps increase revenue, improve efficiencies, and enhance experience of their employees and their customers. To learn more, head over to revelsystems.com slash unstoppable. All right, we're back, and you were just getting into... uh talking about how you were making your, your break into the, the world of hospitality. Uh, where did this idea even come from? What, was it a, a desire you always had? Was there an opportunity that presented itself? Like how did you get started in hospitality? Well, I can tell you that now that I'm in hospitality, uh, I found out that a high, high percentage of lawyers want to get into something other than being a lawyer. Uh, I hear that all the time. A lot, a lot of my attorney friends, we host a lot of uh, legal events, and attorneys always approach me and say, how do I switch places with you? Um, <laughs> uh, but no, uh, in all seriousness, I did not plan, I did not make a affirmative decision to become a restaurateur. Um, at first, I had uh, met a, a very successful restaurateur, a guy named Charlie Watkins, uh, here, who had done a lot of great restaurants here in Houston, uh, an amazing chef, and he had a concept, and I invested in it as a silent investor. It was simply supposed to be a uh, investment, um, and um, you know, hopefully, you see some good returns, kind of get some mailbox money. And it was just going to be a side investment, um, and. Um, we ended up having to add more partners uh, because we were undercapitalized um, at that time. And we ended up uh, ha- adding more partners. And the thing just exploded overnight. I mean, um, and it became uh, a juggernaut. And, you know, we had two, three-hour waits to get in on Friday and Saturday nights. So this is Hughes Hanger that this we're is, talking about. That's correct. Hughes Hanger. So Charlie Watkins was a successful restaurateur. What was it about Charlie Watkins that made you want to invest in? What, what did you see in Charlie? So Charlie uh, had already been successful with a lot of different restaurants, uh, from casual concepts to um, high-end um, upscale restaurants. In fact, one of his restaurants was named top ten in America by Bon Appetit magazine and GQ. Okay. So you're talking about a guy. Um, he had cooked. He had cooked in the White House before. He had cooked for uh, President George H. Bush and George W. Bush as well um, in, in in the state capitol. Um, so uh, he was accomplished. Um, 
And uh, on top of that, one of the things that I always tell people, when you go into business with somebody, always put everything in writing, and, 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 and that's fantastic. And, 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 um, but do it with someone that you know that even if you forget to put it in writing, that their word is good. Yeah. That their handshake is good. That's a safety net. Uh, that's a safety net. <laughs> yeah. And because at the end of the day, even 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 the best lawyers don't predict everything. And you want a business partner that you can rely on to be honest and fair. And I can tell you from my experience with Charlie Watkins um, that he is a fair, honest, decent human being. And that's the kind of people I want to work with. So how long did you know Charlie before this opportunity presented itself to you? I had known him for about a year. Um, and then, you know... We were talking, and a the guy's creative. He's an amazing chef. Uh, you know, we just got we just got to know each other. We became you know good drinking buddies, and I hung out at at, at, at some of his establishments. And he said, "Hey, I've got this concept I want to do," and um, and I said, "You know, I'd like in on in on it." You know, as a solid investor, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, it was just again supposed to be a, a passive investment. So, aside from. Uh maybe seeing the same assets in you as far as being somebody who can be trustworthy, who you'd want to do business with, uh, the person you don't need the, the, the uh, partnership agreement with, but it's nice to have. I'm sure you saw that in you, but what else did you think that he saw in you other than just your capital and your relationship? Well, I, I think he felt a lot the same way about me because he, he had had business partners before where the level of trust wasn't wasn't the same. And I think he kind of felt like, um, you know, we, we clicked not as business partners, but as friends. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that's very important because when you're working side by side with somebody, you want to make sure you get along with them. Um, and it's not just on a professional level, but it really helps um, yeah. to get along with them on a friendship level as well. Um, he took me over to the location that he was looking at. It was at the time where Washington was kind of on the cusp of really kind of growing. Um, Washington Avenue, which is one of the uh, um, the entertainment spots here in, in, in Houston. So part of it was also it being the right time and place as well. I looked at it. Um, it was really raw at the time, just kind of a, 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 a big mess of a piece of land. But I saw that it had a lot of potential. And I liked the concept that um, he was envisioning. And um, so it was just an investment decision. But, I mean, just to get a note from Charlie in, I don't know Charlie Watkins' story, uh, but just from seeing a lot of commonalities within successful people, when you're you're going to investors, don't just go after money. Go for the relationship. Go for the other assets that this person has. We mentioned in the very beginning of this episode that money isn't the only asset. Uh, Your ability to do good in the world and create a good reputation for yourself, it can also be an asset. But also, you have a law degree. You know, you have a legal practice under your belt. How valuable is it to have a partner, an investor, who also has legal consultation backing them up? I mean, do you think that was playing in its mind? Like, hey, if I'm going to go to a partner, I might as well go to a partner who can also consult and advise me on legal decisions. Was that a role that you played? Yeah, I, I, I can tell you right now that when you're looking for investors or when you're looking for partners... Money should be only one of many factors yeah. to look at because, in fact, um, I've heard horror stories over and over and over again about investors that come in. They have the money, but they bring nothing else to the table. And, in fact, they end up being a negative because they drain your energy. They complain about this. They have unrealistic expectations. They don't really understand the industry. Um, and so they cause a lot more trouble. And so sometimes um, the money actually turns out to be a negative. You want a partner that understands the, con- the business. You want a partner that, um, and if possible, they can bring other things to the table. Networking, connections, you know, some kind of skill. Yeah. Um, and so those are the kind of things that, um, you know, Charlie and I sat down and, and he knew I had a lot of connections as well. And I was able to bring in a lot of events. And uh, at, at Hughes Hangar, one of our big sources of income was corporate events. And a lot of those were my clients. 
lot of those were um, my connections. And so he knew going in there that I, that I, would, I would bring more than money to the table. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another huge variable to the, the network. So here you are, a politician, somebody who's constantly uh, in that social circle of people that have money, fund, fundraising, doing all these things. When you're directly tapped into that, that, that vein, that, that existence of this political world, and you have one of your partners that's going to be pulling business to your operation, I mean, was that part of the conversation or did it just kind of organically happen that way? Um, yeah, that was definitely part of the conversation. You know, um, we had the mayor here three weeks ago. Um, we had, um, uh, so in Harris County, 59 newly elected judges. Um, we had them here for their uh, victory uh, event here. All those, all those political events and the one you see here today uh, is booked by, uh, booked by me, um, just be from my connections. Um, and so um, a, a lot of the oil and gas connections as well as the oil and gas attorney for 13 years. So you're talking about a lot of um, a lot of connections. And, yeah, and, absolutely. And he was definitely aware of that, and, and you know, and, and, and we 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 maximize that. Um, we combine those connections with a cool venue that was unique in design. Uh, you know, a lot of these companies they put on three, four, five events a year, and you go to a hotel ballroom. It's a square with furniture in it. It's very boring. People show up, and and and, and the people that were putting on the events would tell me all the time, you know. We're tired of the hotel ballroom. You show up, you have your requisite two glasses of wine, you leave as quickly as you can because it's, it's really boring. And they, everyone's looking for something interesting, unique, edgier, you know what I'm saying, something more fun. And so they were able to do that at, at Hughes Hangar. And I, we heard that over and over again. And so we went from doing zero corporate events to doing four to six a week, um, you know, in, in, in a couple of years. So um, we combined those contacts with a cool venue and then you put in a program where people are getting good quality food, good service every single time. Um, and, you know, that, that, that really helped uh, with the success of Hughes Hanger. Yeah. So I'm curious. You said when you came on, originally you came on as an investor, uh, the success of Hughes Hanger just kind of exploded and you got more involved. Like, what did your involvement look like during the early days? How did you slowly transition to being more involved? So anybody that thinks opening a restaurant or bar is fun and easy, <laughs> do not do it. If that's why you, uh, you're doing it, because it looks fun and, and, and you think you're going to be partying with everybody, look, there's a fun side to it. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's definitely an upside. You know, we get to uh, hang with occasional celebrities and, and, and uh, that come in. All that's fun and, and, and dandy. But your phone does not stop ringing. Something always comes up. It's not if... It's how often. It's not if and it's not even when. It's how often, okay? Things, employees don't show up. Things break. You know, we had a car run, run into our, uh, our breaker box outside on a Friday afternoon oh, right before we were about to open, you know, and knocked out our electricity. Those are the kind of things that are going to happen. It's, it's part of the business process. And so even when you go on vacation, um, your phone has to stay on. And, yeah. and, 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 and you get phone calls and things, things come up all the time. And so um, when... Hughes Hangar really blew up. How long um, did it take to blow up? So when we first opened, our first weekend was friends and family. Fifty people came came through the place, and the second weekend they all went home and told five friends, "Man, this cool place really opened up." Yeah. Uh, and none of us had any previous experience other than Charlie Watkins. Um, the next weekend was a hundred people. The following weekend was two hundred people, and by about the eight week mark. Um, we were completely packed, um, capacity about 800. 
um, and we were completely packed and with probably about an uh, hour to two wait um, outside to get in. So with somebody who has no experience in the industry, what lanes did you fall into? What responsibilities, what responsibilities did you start to absorb? So it was very much a learn-as-you-go uh, type process. So you hire managers that have some experience on the basic bar, uh, 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 bar you know, Ordering, operational stuff, you know, ordering drinks, operational stuff, how things, uh, how things operate. But overall, you really, it is a trial by fire. Our first year, we did really well, just because, largely because we were in the right place at the right time, being on Washington at that time. But also because the design uh, was something that Houston had never seen. If you've seen photos of Hughes Hangar, you'll see it was a very unique design. Our design guy was really, really good, and he created this atmosphere that no one had ever seen before, um, and um, it was really fantastic. And so. Uh, but having said that, we left a lot of money on the table. We made a lot of mistakes because we, you know, we did not know how to capitalize on everything at the time. Give me an example of the opportunities that you missed. So, for instance, the first year we didn't do any corporate events because it didn't occur to us. We were excited. We were happy just by the fact that the place, was, you know, had customers going in, uh, in and out. And I remember the. Um, the first time it occurred to me to do a corporate event, I was standing there and a cocktail waitress walks up to me and she says, hey, this gentleman wants to speak, to, ask to speak to one of the owners. And I assumed it was, you know, and that happens a lot, but people is usually for one of two things, to compliment the place or to complain about something. Yeah. Uh, so I walked over there and he said, I love this place. This is beautiful. Uh, I, I own an oil and gas company. I, I want to do my company Christmas party here. Um, and uh, he said... And I said, we, you know, uh, sure, what night of the week are you thinking about? He's like, Saturday night. And I was like, we're really packed on Saturday night. It's going to be really expensive to shut us down on, for a private party on Saturday night. And he was like, money is no object. We had a really good year. So where does the DJ go? And that was when the light bulb over my head went off. And it was like, oh, companies are looking to do company parties. And that's a whole other avenue. And they have a budget that is, um, you know, very different than what, you know, um, average indivi- in- individuals have and if you become known for giving good service good food you can really carve out another stream of income here yeah another stream of income with huge margins and especially focusing on uh you, you if you start if you if you target people in the oil and fuel industry and they have circles and they start telling their friends like you're going to be getting a real high-end uh clientele and then i mean the those those first two years, we put zero dollars into marketing and advertising. All we had was a Facebook page. Okay. That was it. But we grew our corporate events program by holding corporate events. So every time we did a corporate event, 300 people would show up. 50 of those people had some event they were planning you know, sometime in the next year and said, oh, I didn't know you guys existed. This is a gorgeous place. Really cool. I want to do my event here. And so that's how you grow it. You put on an event, you give them good food, you give them good service, you give them a, a, a unique-looking venue, and then those people come back. And so the attendees of those events actually grows and multiplies. Mm-hmm. But you know as well as I do that it's not just enough to have a beautiful space and a beautiful atmosphere. Uh, you had to deliver on the, the experience, the quality of the product. Uh, not having any experience delivering on those uh, those those variables that are necessary. How did you how did you surround yourself with the right people that could deliver on those variables? So, I I had been in the corporate world my entire adult uh, life, you know, and I represented um, Fortune 500 companies, a big oil and gas companies. So I was used to dealing with VPs and CEOs and stuff like that. So, but you're absolutely right. Uh, a guy who is who is a vice president over at Chevron or at you know some large company has a certain expectation. Um, probably higher expectation with regard to service and food and things and things of that nature than uh, me just walking into a restaurant, right? Um, and so you got to make sure that your staff. And so 
uh, is trained to uh, uh, talk to people the correct way, uh, give them the respect and courteous service that they're used to, um, because again, the level of expectation is higher uh, than 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 just, an, uh, uh, for instance, um, me walking walking into a restaurant. And so it was incumbent upon me um, and 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 fellow owners to get the staff trained that hey, you're not talking to a guy that's just you know coming home from a baseball game and stopping in with in, in flip-flops and a, in a baseball cap that just wants a beer and, and he's casual about it. You know, he doesn't have these expectations. But when you come in a suit and tie and your company is spending $50,000, you have certain expectations of the level of service that you're going to get. Yeah. Uh, and, and so um, the staff, hiring the staff and training the staff to recognize the difference and, and, and making sure that they have that ability to go to that higher level of uh, service is very important. Yeah. I saw, I'm not even sure exactly what lane you're in uh if you've answered that i mean obviously in the uh the networking in the 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 your channel of, of communication to that that market that demographic of people that you're doing the catering with you're pulling people in uh you're recruiting business what else were you doing what else was, was your specialty so eventually in somewhere about year three i became the managing owner okay of, of, of Hughes hanger and um the other owners asked me to step up and become the managing owner and there is no limits on what a managing owner needs to do. You are involved in everything. Yeah. Hiring um, 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 uh, vendors, you know, I- legal issues pop up, um, marketing, you know, who are you going to use, you know, promoters uh, approach you and we want to do an event here. What events you want to do, what events you don't want to do, you know, um, uh, how people are trained, uh, you know, um, so what kind of food menu. So when you are a managing owner, be prepared to do everything, including calling Roto-Rooter when, the, when, when one of the uh, toilets breaks down uh, on a busy night. Be prepared to deal with the city permitting issues. Be prepared to um, you know, step in and bartend sometimes. Uh, be prepared to bust tables sometimes. It is not always a glamorous life. You really do whatever you have to do. Uh, one of the things I'll always say is it's really hard to find good um, management. It's really hard to find good staff. However... Even when you do, no one will ever care about your business as much as you do because it's your business. It's your baby. And if you're not sitting there paying close attention to it and paying attention to a lot of the details that no one would pick up unless they really, really, really cared about the venue... Uh, then you're going to leave a lot of uh, uh, leave a lot, a lot of holes where things could fall through the cracks. But it's still it's really impressive to think that you had no prior uh, hospitality, food and beverage experience, uh, and in three years you went from just being an investor to being a managing partner. What things were you doing in that three years that really made you stand out? That your your partners wanted to bring you on as more of a managing partner than just the the, the capital investment. So one of the things that you, I'm always surprised by people who do events is that they do a very, and I'm sorry, not events, but do venues, they do a very cookie-cutter type style, right? So it's almost formulaic, right? And um, the failure rate among restaurants and bars is extremely high. And I understand why. And it's because a lot of people just kind of do what they see other people doing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we recognized early on was you've got to be creative because you're not the only guy in town. Yep. There is a million other places buying for that one customer, and you got to be... Um, creative. You got to think outside the box. You have to constantly throw new experiences at people. So we were constantly, we were meeting every week with a creative team to try to create new and fun events to keep things interesting. Because no place is so great that you can come back every single weekend for 
100 weekends in a row and not eventually get bored, right? Yeah. Um, and so you always have to tr- uh, throw new, new looks at people. So early on, I was over, you know, kind of, you know, even though I wasn't the managing owner, I was also, I was there watching operations, picking up on, on, on ideas, how we can improve ourselves, how we can improve a better service. You sit there and you watch and you notice things, lighting, volume, ambiance, um, things of that nature, how, you know, ticket times, and you start to learn all that stuff and you figure out what works, what doesn't work. And then marketing um, and, and, and how you get people through the doors. Those are the kind of things that I, that I started getting more and more involved in. And, and like I said, by year three, um, the other partners just recognized that um, I um, had the experience by that time to kind of take the reins. And so they asked me to, to, to um, step up and take the reins full time. So what about the mentality that you're in? Anybody who's listening to this right now, who's treating it like they own it, who... Uh, has real opportunity with the restaurant group because of the sweat equity that they're putting in. What advice do you have to that person? I mean, you had the capital that you were putting in too, but also but it was that sweat equity that earned you the title of being a managing partner, right? Yeah. So what advice do you have to that person uh, that, that is trying to, to climb that ladder, to, to, to join the ranks with, of, of ownership? So one of the things that um, I think is the most important thing is creativity. And, and I think you can get managers that have the operational aspect down and, you know, they can run a bar and they can make sure the food comes out with the ticket time less than 15 minutes or, you know, right at the 15-minute mark and they can make sure the food is generally consistent and that, that kind of thing. Um, but you got to be creative. What is your menu going to look like? How is it going to, you know, when someone is sitting at home, why are they going to your place instead of some, uh, some other place? And then on Saturday night, Friday night, how are they, why are they picking your place instead of some other place, right? And so you got to get creative with the design, with the food menu, the drink program, the events that you're putting on, um, anything you can do marketing, branding-wise. Um, and so what I always tell people is don't do just what you see other people. Don't just copy other ideas and... Um, you got to think outside the box. Yeah, you can get inspired by other people's ideas, but take it and make it your own. Absolutely. So you guys opened Hughes Hangar 2011, 2012, that, around that time? 2011. And then in 2014, you opened the De Gaulle. Uh, what, what, what happened? I mean, that's right after you also became a managing partner. Was, were you influencing this, this second location, or what was going on there? So we actually had a storage room. So we had a 1.4, approximately 1-acre uh, compound there, and that included a storage room. Um, there and what was happening is that at that point we were doing so many corporate events that we were constantly closed to the public and so people would show up your regular crowd would show up and it would say closed for a private event and people actually get very upset about that because you know um, and and, and so what we want to do is give ourselves the flexibility of doing a corporate event and having one other spot open for for the public or maybe you know and and there were times when we had both places closed uh, because we had so many corporate events uh, so we really, we really needed to expand. Um, so we created a different concept called the De Gaulle, and it was a Paris theme uh, named after Charles De Gaulle Airport. Everything we do, we like to have a story behind it. Um, I, I don't think I don't think it's creative enough just to come up with a name. Yeah. I think uh, you know we were called Hughes Hangar because we were right next door to where um, Howard Hughes is buried. Okay. And uh, we wanted to make it look like an airplane hangar because Howard Hughes is an air, uh, is a um, um, pilot. Uh, uh, pilot. Um, and um, we wanted to make it look like an airplane hangar that had been gutted and turned into a speakeasy. Uh, and so put some thought into your concept. Make it interesting. People like to tell stories. When they leave and they, they're talking to their friends, what did you do this past weekend? I went to this one place. It looks like an airplane hangar that had been gutted and turned into a speakeasy, right? And, so, and it's named after, you know, uh, you know, it's named Hughes Hangar because it's right next door to where Howard Hughes is buried, right? Those are the things 
that is free advertising. Yeah, that's the best it's kind a story of story ad- too. It's the best kind of ad- ad- advertising there is. Um, so you know, play into that. And same thing uh, with the goal. It gave us more flexibility to do corporate events. Um, it gave us another space, more space because we needed it. Um, so yeah. So uh, today. Uh, both the Degal in Hughes Hangar is no longer around. What happened ultimately before those those locations closed? So those, uh, it actually is. Both of those locations have now been converted into a uh, private events venue. Okay. So now, so now they're doing only private events, uh, corporate events, weddings, uh, 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 that type. So did you so. sell? Did you build up this business and sell it to get out of? So in 2015, um, I made the decision to take a year off away from the business. By that point, um, I had been um, running a business for about two and a half, three years full time. And again, vacations don't mean anything because your phone is constantly on. And um, I I show people um, 13 years of of being a litigation attorney, no gray hairs. And as you can (laughs) see here, uh, five years at Hughes Hanger, uh, I, I grew a lot of gray hairs. And it, like I said, it, 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 it's a different kind of animal. Um, you have to be constantly involved, 24-7. You're constantly plugged in. So I, I, I took a year off. I sold um, and, 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 and took a year off away from the business just to um, take a breather. I don't um, think there's anything wrong with that. You build something of value. You sell it. Uh, you, you, know, you, you, you have the asset. You might, you know, and then that creates other opportunities. It gives you freedom to, to think. They get clarity on what's going to be next, and you, I mean, I, I find that the the, the most creative uh, and sometimes the most successful people in this this industry need that ever changing. They, they, they're great at building restaurants. They're, they're great at the creative process, but they also don't want to be like locked down by it either. Um, do you feel like you're being locked down by it, or so? Hughes Hanger was a very unique animal in that um, it wasn't a restaurant that simply had the same thing night after night it was constantly changing and it was such um, a hot spot after 10 p.m. so it was like a packed you know kind of went into club mode um, and it was like a packed club uh, um, after 10 p.m. so you had um, late nights three four nights a week coming home four or five in the morning Um, so what I tell people is if you are going to do um, a venue like that be prepared to give up a lot of your own personal life because um, you're constantly having to be there. Um, you don't get to go out. To, the people that get to go to other, uh, that, that get to try out other restaurants are not the managing owners because yeah. they're always tied to their restaurant. Yeah. And so after about three years, I, 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 I needed a break. I wanted a break and I wanted to, uh, to do new, new things. So that was in 2014, 2000. When did you when did you sell? You said 2015. You sold it. So I actually took over in 2000. I think probably the early part of 2013, if I recall correctly. So I spent most of 2013, 2014, and most of 2015 as as the managing owner. So half of 2015, something uh, half like of that, 2016, yeah. and then uh, you you opened Ch- or Chapman and Kirby opened in 2015 too, didn't it? No, Chapman Kirby opened in 2017. 17. Okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So. Uh, what I mean after going through the and experiencing the industry and how for, unforgiving the industry can be, why get back into it? What was going through your mind? Like what what happened to make you want to get back into it? So this happens to me a lot. I always say, <laughs> okay, this year I'm not taking on any new projects. Yeah, and then interesting projects come across my desk that I just simply can't turn down. 
at that time, Washington and Midtown were kind of the two major entertainment um, spots. Um, and we were approached by the developers that wanted to really... And Edo was always kind of on the brink. For about 15 years, people kept saying, the next hot spot's going to be Edo, the next hot spot's going to be Edo. And um, they approached us and they said, hey, you know, we really kind of need you know, a good big name to kick off this area. Um, to help us kick off this area. Are you interested in, in, in doing this? And we looked at it, and it, it, it's a nice little pocket uh, surrounded by the three stadiums, Toyota Center, Minute Maid Park, um, and, and, and um, the soccer stadium. Uh, you also have uh, George O'Brien Convention Center two blocks over. And we just thought, you know, and I, and I talked to my business partners, and we said, you know what, let's take a risk. Let, let's do this. I would love to help um, kind of kickstart another movement in a different part of town. Um, and in fact, in 2017, we won the Landmark Awards for, one, uh, for the most important development because we kind of helped uh, jumpstart a part of town that um, was kind of on the cusp. Um, and, and, and since we moved in, you see Truck Yard and Rodeo Go. There's construction all around us right Cultivare has opened three uh, locations, one block uh, from us. Uh, Pitch 25 opened a block uh, uh, that way. So you have a lot of new things that popped up all around us. But we were kind of um, the first... Four, uh, on this block, there are other pla- uh, uh, places that have been in Edo for a yeah, long it's like time. A, a pool party, and you're the first yeah. person to dive in. So you know, I mean, there were other places here, but they had been there for a while, and there hadn't been a lot of new development. And so, um, you know, I, I think we can um, honestly say that we helped um, 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 accelerate the development of Edo, and and I think that's one of the reasons why we won the uh, Houston Business Journal's Landmark Award for 2017. Um, was because of that and, and now you see so many great concepts so many great ideas coming into this neighborhood and I think um, as, the res- as the residential um, people start to come in I think you're going to see a whole developing neighborhood o- over here and I think Edo is going to be a great great fun part of town beautiful so I'm curious uh, your, your partners for this location Mason uh, Baltgadi I hope I'm saying that correctly Juan uh, Keo and Tim uh, Sufan, I'm, I'm probably destroying all those names right now. If I am, I apologize. Am I destroying all those names right now? Uh, <laughs> let me help you out. Juan Cow was my business partner Thank at, you. at Hughes Hanger. Okay. And in yeah. fact, he was the one that designed Hughes Hanger. Okay. He designed Chapman and Kirby. He also did the Astorian, um, which is a, a very high-profile events venue. He did that separate from me. Um, so he... he he, he's, he's our design guy. He's the creative design guy. He creates beautiful spaces. Uh, Mazen Baltagi um, owns the Christian's tailgate ch- tailgates chain. He's owned Riches at one point. Um, uh, Miluna, St. Danes. And so he's, he's been in the hospitality industry for a long, long time. Really okay. strong operator. Um, so, and then um, Tim. And then Tim, was, Tim actually started off as our chef. Uh, but he lives in Dallas and made a decision kind of um, last minute to stay in Dallas, did not want to relocate his family here to Houston. And so actually he's no longer, he, he, uh, by the time we opened, he was no longer uh, gotcha, our partner. Gotcha. So um, a lot of the same players in the, the different projects, uh, how did this team come together? Were there, I mean, did Charlie not want to, was, he, was his hands full? What was going on there? So Charlie, by that time, um, uh, had moved to Thailand okay. to open a hotel. Okay. Um, and got married and had a kid, and so he's he's happily living in in, in Thailand. I'm going to be in Thailand in 20 days. Where is he in Thailand? Uh, you know what? I I don't even remember the name of the city because because even though he's been asking me to come visit him, I haven't had a chance to yet. We'll but, find 
out because yeah. I want to go. I want to interview him. I'm <laughs> it, 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 he, he's shown me pictures. The place is beautiful. He owns a little hotel right there. Lives with his wife and kids. Oh, man, so this he's going to happen. He's a happy. He, he's a happy <laughs> man. The last thing he wants to do is come back to um, um, to to the bar business here in Houston. So, so I, I think. Please help me set that up if you don't mind. And uh, I guess what I'm getting at is what. What happened differently with Chapman and Kirby? I mean, you, 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 you're coming off all this experience uh, after having no experience. Now you have a little bit of experience. You know what to expect. How did you tackle this project differently knowing what you now know or knowing what you knew in 2017? So, uh, first of all, the biggest advantage we had after five years over at Hughes Hangar was that we had a big following already with regard to people that knew us and, and, and knew the kind of product that we put out. And so when we opened our doors um, quietly... Under a soft opening on some random Thursday night, I think we had like 600 people the very first day we opened our doors. Um, so part of that was that you don't have to re-introduce um, uh, yourself to the to the group, the inner loop crowd that kind of goes out regularly. Yeah. And so you already have a lot of connections. You have a lot of people to populate your place uh, 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 from the very beginning. So that makes it a lot easier than starting from scratch, obviously. Uh, number two, the build-out. We built this place out as you and I took a little tour right before we did this interview. And I kind of explained to you, right now we have three different corporate events. We've got Chevron, we've got Jefferies, and we've got a, a city council uh, uh, candidate um, uh, doing three different events in three different sections of the venue. That we built it out specifically so we could do that kind of thing. And that was something we learned from Hughes Hanger was that we were constantly having night days where three different groups wanted to do an event the same day, and we couldn't accommodate that. We could accommodate one, sometimes two, uh, sometimes three, but we built out specifically knowing that corporate events this time was going to be a very um, uh, high percentage of our uh, revenue stream, whereas at, at, at Hughes Hangar, we just happened to fall into that revenue stream at the time. So you built the space with the intention to be a corporate uh, event center in a sense, but you made it flexible. You made it malleable so you could do multiple things. What, what are some pieces of, of advice you could give us for anybody who wants to cater to the corporate scene who's building out uh, a space, things that most people wouldn't consider that it's important to consider when trying to replicate something that you've created with a multi-room, uh, multi... I mean, explain the space real quick and then explain the things that you think we should know if we want to replicate this. So, uh, right now, we have a satellite bar with kind of a raised VIP area. And there's a company doing their uh, company party uh, for about 150 people. And you can section that off. So, w- when you build it, when you, when you do your build-out, Create the whole space, but create the whole space in a way that you can section off two or three different areas. Um, what you want to do is have access to the restrooms so that when uh, you're doing two separate corporate events, people aren't having to walk through someone else's corporate event in order, in order to go to the restroom. You want to have clear demarcations as well so that people have feel like they have a semi-private area. Yeah. But on top of that, to the extent possible, you want to be able to stay open to the public as well because you have regulars that come to see you. Yes. And yeah, I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep going. And, and when they come, uh, and 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 you close very often for a corporate event, um, they stop coming back. Got you. That's actually one thing that I picked up on your story. I was like, and this is something that recently came up uh, when I had uh, Jody Newman Bailey on the show from San Antonio. And she says that she she will turn away at corporate events because their brand is is called the friendly spot, right? So they're so dependent on regulars that they would be afraid to turn those regulars away. And it sounds like you kind of picked up on that. That was one of your first 
kind of oversight with the corporate events and focusing so much on the corporate events, what about the people that keep you going when it's a Tuesday night? Or, uh, or not a, a busy corporate night or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, and as you can see right now, we've got three different corporate events going on. Th- and we still have the main dining room open for our regular yeah. customers. Got and, it. And, and, and that is um, something that is not an accident. We planned it that way. Mm-hmm. We planned it so that we could do uh, three corporate events while still having uh, 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 room for, for, for the general yeah. public. And just to kind of better or to further help uh, paint the picture for the listeners, uh, it's, it's a, a big open space basically, uh, but you divided it with uh, kind of like not, I, I don't want to say chain link fence. It is a chain link fence, but it's not your traditional, it's a, it's a fancy looking chain link fence. So it's, it's closed off, but it's still open. So what's the value of, you know, you, you create a clear divide, uh, but it's also not necessarily completely closed off. Was that intentional? Um, so my design guy, like I said, is really good. And the idea is to create... And so the, the demarcations, uh, the cages that you're referring to, are, are these steel cages that are part of the design anyways. So we, ha- we have very much of an upscale steampunk look, if you can try to imagine uh, what, what that is. Uh, but it's part of the design anyways, but part of the design can also be functional. And so those, de- those cages can also close and, and actually close off areas to where people feel like they're getting their, their money's worth by having a semi-private area. However, it's not closed in a, in a suffocating way where all of a sudden you're now in this quiet room by yourself. Yeah. You still get to feel the vibe and the ambiance of the entire venue. Um, but you still have your own private area. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. Okay. And that's something to be very cognizant of is the feel of the place. Um, he's very much, our design guy is very much in the feng shui. The idea isn't to create an upscale place where people feel uncomfortable. Uh, they're standing there stiff in a suit and tie. You want them to be able to feel like, I can put on my cocktail dress, but at the same time, for some reason, I feel very comfortable here. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and that in itself is a great accomplishment. Have you ever had uh, two uh, side-by-side events Ask to, to break down the barrier to, to join the parties. I'm curious, I'm just curious. That that happens all the time. Yeah. And, and actually, but that's something we talk to them about beforehand. So a lot of times people will say, "We want a private event from seven to ten, and after ten p.m. we want you to take away the divide, and we want our group to be able to mingle with other people, and other people come mingle with our group." And so um, you know, it's it, it, it's something that you communicate with the client about early on. And when you have good event coordinators, they already know. Uh, to talk to them about that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, you know, the, the idea is the idea, you know, and, and people will be at a corporate event for three hours. And then when they're done, uh, they're ready to go have fun and mingle with new people. Yeah. So I think we've clearly identified that you're an authority on the, the vertical of corporate uh, event spaces within restaurants. Any other advice for somebody who wants to capitalize on the, the, the catering event side of the business and focusing on high-end clients? Any other thing you can drop on us? of value for that specific type of person. So what you'll hear over and over again, if you talk to HR managers, office managers, these are the people that are putting on the corporate events. It's not the VP and the CEO. Uh, they're not handling that kind of stuff. They're not the ones going around Googling and, 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 and visiting venues to try to find a venue. What, what you'll hear over and over again is we wanted something that was upscale but fun. Yeah. Uh, they have enough events where it's, uh, it's very uptight, it's very boring, Stiff. very stale. Yeah. And people are starting to really move away from that because they realize that people are not enjoying this type of, uh, type of stuff. So let people come build out a, a, a place fancy enough to uh, warrant having a suit and tie or cocktail on, but at the same time, not stiff. A little edgy. Edgy, fun. At the end of the day, when people have fun, 
they leave even without even knowing why they leave with a good impression and they think I want to come back so yeah. next weekend someone says hey what do you want to do tonight they remember oh that one spot I had a good time and so they come back to it um, you can build a beautiful place and it's all stiff and you leave you don't have a great time you know you're not going to think next weekend I want to go back to that place right yeah anything we have not discussed up to this point anything that you want to bring to the table to leave myself and my listeners better um, so I I think one of the things that's important for people to do, um, it's not necessarily a financial success um, advice, but it's more of a um, soul success advice because I find that um, the happier you are, the better you're going to be at everything, um, the less stressed out out you are. And and I see people in the business all the time, they're stressed out all the time. and, And you can alleviate a lot of that by recognizing, again, what's important. And for me, what's been important is being able to give back to the community. We host a lot of charity events. In my five years at Hughes Hangar, I think we did well over $2 million in charity events over there. Um, And that was my favorite. People ask me, what's your favorite part about being in the industry? And and I tell them that. Um, You get to host and put on fun events, and you get to do events that actually impact people's lives. And to come full circle, you said one of the reasons why you want to get involved in uh, politics in general was because of your ability to to make change and influence change. And you can do that as an entrepreneur. You have a lot more uh, freedom if you become successful to to create opportunity for other people and to mentor other people and to share that knowledge with the next generation. So it sounds like you're you're doing exactly what it is that you want to do at the age of six years old, which is kind of exciting to hear. Well, you can do that in any industry that you're in. Um, and the, the idea is that if you want to make the world a better place, if you want to help people, if you want to help people coming up, you want to help people uh, on the way out, whatever it is, if you want to, you can do it. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, every industry has, has options and, and opportunities where you can impact your community, um, help people. Um, and you just have to make that affirmative conscious decision that that's what's important to you. Yeah. And the bottom line is not always the most important thing. So Restaurant Unstoppable's mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. Uh, let me ask, how have you transformed uh, in your seven years now in the industry? When you came into the industry to where you are now, how have you transformed? Um, the very first year you open a restaurant, the learning curve is so steep and you will figure out stuff that uh, that you never you never would have imagined. And so I went from being a complete neophyte, having no idea how a restaurant worked, um, to um, getting to a point where I feel comfortable opening um, any type of uh, uh, any type of venue. But more importantly, I also learned that um, you know, again, you can do some good with what you're doing as well. It's not just about you know, making money or, or, or franchising or anything like that. Um, it's hosting the events that, that matter to you. You know, if there's a candidate that's, that, that you feel strongly about, you can host a fundraiser for that candidate. If there is a, a disease or a charity uh, you feel strongly about, you get to do that. Do those kind of things. It feeds the soul and it makes uh, having this venue and the 24-7 headache that comes along with it worth it. Awesome. Great stuff. We're going to take a quick break. One more break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a fast speed round. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. 
That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention you, you've got to compete with the big guys, but how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto, that's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. So this probably does not come as a surprise to you, but as you can imagine, I look at a lot of restaurant websites because I'm constantly researching my next guest, successful restaurateurs, and you'd be surprised how many of those people have bento box websites. I mean, I almost know instantly when looking at these websites because they're always so stunning and they always check every box, everything that a good restaurant website should have. These websites have them, and it's because they're going to Bento Box to get the work done. And not only will Bento Box leave a lasting impression with your guests, but Bento Box websites come with hospitality-focused tools that are proven to drive revenue online. With Bento Box, you can easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events directly from your website. Bento Box puts you in control so you can focus on what matters most, your restaurant. Bring your restaurant's hospitality online with bento box by signing up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable and save up to $1,500 on initial setup for your new restaurant website. We're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I think the idea of being creative is one of the most important things you have to do in the hospitality industry. Think outside the box. Imagine yourself as a customer. When you walk in, how am I going to leave? You're not selling food. You're not selling alcohol. You're selling an experience. Mm-hmm. And get creative with how you deliver that experience, and people will want to come back. What is your biggest weakness? Early on, and why I took that year off, was because my inability to disconnect. Mm-hmm. I was constantly connected, constantly, uh, uh, and that wears you down. You have to be able to disconnect. You have to be able to walk away from for a little bit to, to recharge your batteries. What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team or you're doing an interview? So when, uh, w- one easy thing to do uh, that, that I do is I have them walk through the venue with me and just kind of give them a tour of the venue. And then my, at the end of the tour, I say, what, what would you change about this? And their answer to that question tells me a lot. How much they notice things, uh, their level of attention to detail, their ideas, their creativity. You know, uh, I walked a guy through and he said, well, I noticed that the lighting behind the bar wasn't, you know, wasn't X, Y, Z. And these kind of things, it shows you the level of experience, but also it, it, uh, it, it shows you how creative this person is going to be when problems arise in the future. What's your biggest challenge today? Um, I think my biggest challenge um, today... One of the things that, that, that owners forget to do a lot is to thank their staff. And I constantly um, forget that human beings need to, be, uh, to feel appreciated. And so I make it a, a, a point now to let my staff know, hey, we really appreciate it. After a long, like one of those crazy nights where it's packed and things are going 100 miles an hour, I pull them aside and say, hey, I really appreciate that. And early on, I didn't. And the first time I did, I remember one of the uh, cocktail witches just saying, 
that really meant a lot to me. Yeah. Because I'm exhausted right now, and we, we busted our bus tonight, and the fact that you stopped and said that to me really mean, means a lot to me. And, and, and that's when you realize there is a, uh, a personal uh, uh, aspect of it that you really have to pay attention to as well. Yes. What is one code of conduct or behavior, core value you teach your team? What people... Um, why people come back repeatedly because they feel comfortable there they, the first time they come to your place it's because it's new the second time they come and third time they come and so forth and so forth is because they feel comfortable there make people feel comfortable learn their names say their names when you see them because everybody it's like the old song goes everybody wants to go where people know their names right yes. and that, at the end of the day what you're creating is an experience when people feel comfortable um, and they feel like they're going to their home away from home you're going to have a good following. What's one book to make us a better person or restaurant operator? So um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend um, a, a, a book. I think one of the most inspirational things I read regularly is the Bill and Melinda Gates um, annual letter. Um, they give predictions and um, updates as to what, how the world is, the global aspect of the world. And uh, one year they, they wrote in uh, the newsletter was why everything will be twice as good in 20 years. And then they went through and gave factual information uh, with research and facts and data as to why in 20 years X amount of diseases will be cut in half. Uh, you know, the bad things will be cut in half and the good things will, be, will have doubled by then. And those are kind of things that inspire me personally uh, and make me um, less weary of the world. Because one of the things that people forget to this, in this business is that you have to keep your soul in good shape. You want to be a happy, inspirational, and inspired, and optimistic person. Because when you are, you're going to be at your best. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, again, what I see is um, lack of creativity over and over again. I see them put on events that everyone else is putting on the event. Exactly. It's the same thing. You know, their Halloween party is the exact same as everyone else's Halloween party. Their New Year's Eve party is the exact same thing. Their Cinco de Mayo party. And um, all it took was if you just literally sat down for a few hours and tried to get a little creative, you could come up with something better. And so I see that over and over again. What is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that's had a huge influence on operations? Uh, video cameras. Okay. Get yourself video cameras. You can you can look at it from uh, from from your cell phone at home. You can look at it from your laptop at home, and that way you are constantly connected with what's happening. And you can um, um, a that motivates their st- your staff to know that people are paying attention to what's happening. But also you can keep your uh, your fingers on the pulse of what's happening every single night, even though you can't be there every single night. Is there one pro- provider, one service, one technology you went with that you can share with us? Um, I don't think the provider matters in that regard. I think the idea is just to stay, you know, to stay connected um, and pay attention because one of the, I think one of the biggest mistakes that um, uh, new venue owners make is that they think that they can walk away and leave it in the hands of somebody else. But again, no one's going to care about your space as much as you do. Um, and so until you become an established chain or franchise, um, it's going to be difficult to walk away from your venue for long periods of time. Um, and not pay it the proper amount of attention and be successful. This is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the, excep- the exception of three pieces of wisdom, three things you know to be true that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three truths be? The most important currency in life 
is compassion. Mm. I really believe that. Um, there is nothing that's going to feed your soul as much as watching uh, um, someone's life get improved because you had a hand in that. That's number one. That's number one. Number two, um, I think love, people always say love is a two-way street. I, don't, I disagree. I think it's a one-way street. You love somebody because of who they are, not because of whether they love you back or not. Um, and, and, and you love them for who they are, not for what they give to you. That's so two? That's number two. Uh, number three, stop worrying so much about yourself. Um, take care of yourself. Don't get me wrong, but some people, not some people, I think a lot of people are so egocentric and everything is revolved around their perspective. Try to step out of it and realize, hey, this, these other people are suffering. They're going through a tough time. I'm not going to judge this guy. I don't know his story. Um, and that perspective makes it easier to be more tolerant and to accept people for who they are. And, um, you know, that kind of perspective uh, makes life a lot more enjoyable. Ben Tran, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. This place is starting to get packed. I can hear it getting louder in my headset as we're talking. Uh, we wrap up every conversation by calling somebody out. So who's one person you respect and admire in this industry and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Sure. So my business partner, uh, Juan Cao uh, and, and Mazen Baltagi, um, on this particular project, they've taken the reins of, of this project. Um, I'm actually, for the deal we struck on, on this project was that they were going to be the operating owners. Again, I didn't want any more gray hair. I've, I, I, I've got enough. And um, my hat goes off to them. And the reason why I picked them is because they're two guys that I feel really comfortable with. They're smart guys. They're hardworking guys. And I got to tell you, uh, I go back to the thing where you can trust people on a handshake. These are two guys I can trust on a handshake. Uh, and, and, and they've been successful in the other things they've done. Um, and, and, and not just from a professional uh, standpoint, but from a friendship and just decent human being standpoint. And I think that's an accomplishment in and of itself. So that was uh, Juan and uh, Mason? Juan and Mazen, my two Mazen, business partners here. Look, yeah. look out, guys. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. Uh, and let the folks at home know, how can we follow your work, maybe connect if we want to come join your team or whatever? What's the best way to connect? Um, so uh, Chapman and Kirby dot uh, com is is our website um, uh, as we do uh, expand and do other projects you'll you, um, you'll see it all over our, our websites follow us on Facebook as well and um, Twitter Instagram and anytime uh, that we do new projects you'll you'll see it come through the Chapman and Kirby website. and I'll have those handles in the show notes I'll have a summary of today's discussion over there a link to any tool services uh, products, books recommended, or that, that article, that, or the, the annual article that the, the Gates put out will be in the, the show notes and how to connect all in the show notes. Again, Ben Tran, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. I love your podcast, man. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. All right, there we go. Another episode in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Before I let you go, I have to remind you, please sign up for the Restaurant Unstoppable email list. That is where you will never miss an episode and you get the behind the scenes of what's going on here, where I'm at, what's on my mind, and what the future of Restaurant Unstoppable looks like, and you can have an influence on that. Don't forget to connect on social media. That's slash Restaurant Unstoppable on Facebook and at Eric Cacciatore, E-R-I-C-C. A-C-C-I-A-T-O-R-E on Instagram. But the most important thing you can do to support this mission of inspiring, empowering, and transforming our industry is by sharing this sucker with anybody and everybody you know who's aspiring to be great in the industry. All right. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.